female invariably had a swim. On the day in question, however, something off the trail had drawn the young female away from the group, so that when the others stopped at the river, she wasn't with them. They turned to go home, as was their custom, and had gone about 80 feet down the trail when the young female, hot and ready for her daily bath, burst out of the bushes halfway between them and the river. Too late, they were leaving, and she had missed her swim. Poised beside the trail, she first looked to the right after her group, then looked to the left at the river, then looked to the right a second time, then looked once more at the water, made an instant decision, rushed full speed up the trail to the river, plunged in, quickly swam a few strokes, then turned back to the bank, leapt out and tore after her group, not stopping to shake until she had caught up to them. The dog who was observed playing a game was a young male, a shepherd lab cross who had recently been given to an inactive, somewhat elderly couple who also owned an inactive elderly female dog. The youngster had no one to play with, certainly not the older dog, who was very strict with him and tolerated no amusement of any kind. So the poor young dog often seemed at a loss, like a young person with no friends and nothing to do. One snowy night, I saw him all by himself on a hillside near the house where he was staying, running fast with his nose to the ground. Whatever little rodent he was chasing seemed to be leading him in a big circle, which returned the rodent to the starting point where the dog nuzzled for quite a while in one place, evidently at a hole where the quarry had gone to earth. But then, to my surprise, the dog started running again. Again, with his nose to the ground, he made a second big circle that retraced the first. And again, he nuzzled in one place, as if his quarry had again gone to earth. I found all this very strange. What little creature would come up out of a safe hole right under a dog's nose in order to lead the dog around in a circle? And wouldn't the dog grab it when it came out? While I was puzzling over this, the dog rushed around the circle a third time, then a fourth, then a fifth, and a sixth. Each time his demeanor was the same. Alert, excited, tail high and waving, nose to earth, eager the last time as he had been the first. And when I went near for a look, I found, of course, that there was no quarry and no hole either. The entire event had been a fantasy. This imaginative dog had been pretending. The dog who adopted a human mannerism is my husband's dog, who amazed us all one hot day this past summer after my husband had bought himself an ice cream cone. As my husband took the first taste, he noticed that his dog was watching, so he offered the cone, expecting the dog to gobble it. But to everyone's astonishment, the dog politely licked a little ice cream, just as my husband had done. My husband then licked a little more, and again offered it to the dog, who also licked a little more. In this way, taking turns, they ate the ice cream down to the cone. Then my husband took a bite. The dog watched him. Assuming that the dog would bolt the rest of the cone, my husband passed it on for what he thought would be the last time. But drawing back his lips to expose his little incisors, the dog took the most delicate of nibbles. Twice more, my husband and the dog took turns biting the cone until only the tip remained. Who ate the tip of the cone? My husband ate it. The dog let him have the last turn. Astounding? Not really. For eight years, my husband and this dog had built a relationship of trust and mutual obligation, neither making unreasonable demands on the other or patronizing the other or trying to subordinate the other, but each doing exactly what he wants usually in the other's company. Only in such a setting, only when both participants consider themselves equals, could this scene have taken place. Do dogs have thoughts and feelings? Of course they do. That being said, however, 
A book on dogs must, by definition, be somewhat anthropomorphic, and reasonably so, since our aversion to the label is misplaced. Using the experience of one species to evaluate the experience of another species has been a useful tool to many of the great wildlife biologists. We are not the only species to apply our values and our experience when interpreting other creatures. Dogs do it too. When a dog with a bone menaces a human observer, the dog actually assumes that the person wants the slimy, dirt-laden object and is applying dog values or cinemorphizing. Nevertheless, most animals, including dogs, constantly evaluate other species by means of empathetic observation. A dog of mine once assessed my mood, which was dark, over a distance of about 100 yards and changed his demeanor from cheery to bleak in response. He was in a pen that I was approaching, and as I rounded the corner, he caught sight of me. I was sad at heart, but not showing it in a way that any of the people around me had noticed. But the dog saw at once that something was wrong. Over the great distance, he stared at me a moment, as if to be sure that he was really seeing what he thought he was seeing, and then, evidently deciding that his first impression had been accurate, he drooped visibly. I was so impressed with his acuity that I cheered up again, and so did he. And finally, anthropomorphism can help us interpret the act of showing the belly, the act that symbolizes what puppies do when submitting to adult dogs. By the act, dogs say to us, Do as you will with us, since we are helpless puppies in your presence. Do dogs think we're God? Probably not. But just as we think of God's ways as mysterious, Dogs find our ways capricious and mysterious, often with excellent reason. Every day the humane societies execute